Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Dr. Stephen Thrasher. Stephen is an author, professor, and journalist who's written for publications ranging from The Village Voice to The New York Times, from The Atlantic to Scientific American and The Guardian, and many, many other publications. Dr. Thrasher's new book is his first. It's called The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide, and it exposes the vast inequalities between those who typically contract and survive viruses and those whom viruses more easily target and kill. We talk about the systems that create a viral underclass, Stephen's unique experiences as a Black and queer writer talking about disease, and the way his own writing intersected with the COVID-19 pandemic. Remember, our book club pick for November is Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms by Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law. And we will be discussing the book on Wednesday, November 30th with Mariam Kaba. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on today's episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. It is the week of Thanksgiving, so I just want to say a huge, huge thank you to The Stacks Pack. That's our incredible community of lovers of this podcast and lovers of books and people who are willing and able to put their money behind an independent podcast that they love. I could not make this show without The Stacks Pack, and so I am forever grateful that you all allow me to put this nerdy bookish show into the world every single week. You also allow me to employ two incredible team members, Christian, who is our editor, who I am beyond thankful for, and Lauren, who helps me basically get everything done. So if not for the Stacks Pack, there would be no The Stacks. So Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you are listening to this right now and you want to support this incredible community and earn perks like a virtual book club, bonus episodes, a Discord, discounts on merch, and all of that jazz, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join us. Again, just a huge, huge thank you from the bottom of my heart to every single member of the Stacks Pack. Okay, enough of the thank yous. Let's get to the conversation between myself and Dr. Stephen Thrasher. All right, everybody, welcome to The Stacks. I am really excited. Today, I'm talking to author and journalist, uh, Stephen Thrasher, whose book is The Viral Underclass. If you have been listening to the show or following me on social media, you know I picked it up a few months ago and freaking loved it. So I demanded that Stephen come to The Stacks. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. 
I'm so excited to talk with you. Before I ask you a bunch of questions, we'll start where we always start. In about 30 seconds or so, can you just tell folks about the book? In 30 seconds, sure. <laughs> We're going to spend the rest of the yeah. hour talking about yeah. it in detail. So this is just a primer. So for people yeah. who aren't familiar. <laughs> um, so the viral underclass began uh, as an investigation I wrote into the criminalization of HIV and AIDS and understanding the social factors for why HIV is criminalized, why people get AIDS, uh, and then it expanded to understanding how that deals with racism and ableism. And when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, I started seeing that the same areas of the country and the same kinds of people were becoming infected with COVID, which was a bit surprising because it's a very, very different virus than HIV and behaves differently. Um, and so the book is about 12 different social vectors that I've identified that explain why and how the same kinds of people become infected by very different kinds of viruses, um, largely told through the stories of different people that I've interviewed and got to meet along the way. Okay, you did a perfect job because you set up like nine topics that I already had notes that I wanted to talk about. So thank you. You teed me up perfectly. Will you just sort of explain the idea of what a viral underclass is or what that what that term means to you? Sure. I, I first heard the term originally from an activist named Sean Strube, who used it to talk about when HIV is prosecuted under the law. And what he was identifying was that in the U.S., we don't normally explicitly uh, create laws around immutable characteristics. It has happened. You know, there are times in history where around mis miscegenation laws or certain racial laws where race is explicitly named, but it's usually not explicitly named. It mm -hmm. usually happens implicitly. Right. But with HIV laws, it's very explicit. It says that people who are living with HIV are living under a different set of laws than everyone else. And Sean illustrates it by saying even infants who become uh, HIV positive before they're born for the rest of their lives are going to set under a different set of laws where things that might seem very normal to everyone else, things like, you know, having sex or getting arrested or spitting and things like this, uh, will, they'll just be prosecuted and living under a different set of laws. I heard activists using it kind of a different way when I was writing about the Michael Johnson case, which I'm sure we'll talk about, mm -hmm. um, where they were saying either effort, efforts to either mitigate, change, or abolish these laws could create a viral underclass. And I use it in sort of a third way. I use it to understand how and why, through class dynamics, certain people become infected or uh, disparately impacted by certain viruses. I also use it to understand uh, kind of class dynamics of, of the world, but particularly of the United States, and the ways that becoming infected with a virus in the US makes you much more likely to move down the economic ladder and to have debt and economically harmful things happen in your life going forward. So that's kind of how I use it. I had been working with the phrase a little bit in my dissertation research around the criminalization of HIV, but then when COVID happened, I used it as an analytic to start looking at how different viruses intersect with people uh, around the world. And in the book, I'm primarily talking about HIV and COVID, but I'm also writing a little bit about influenza and hepatitis. And since the book came out, even though it's only been out for a couple of months, I've been using it a lot to, to think about and process the monkeypox epidemic that's happened, uh, particularly here in the United States. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things I'm fascinated about is, you know, the work that you have done on HIV. And then, you know, you start working on this book and COVID. How closely 
did you start working on this book before COVID was a thing? Or did you always know that COVID was going to be a part of this book? No, COVID really interrupted uh, in the long and messy process of writing a book. Um, <laughs> I had, you know, I've been now, I guess at the time where it was being developed, I'd been writing about the Michael Johnson case for about six years. Mm. And it had become the basis of my dissertation uh, that I wrote in American Studies at NYU. And I really was understanding the criminalization of HIV is illustrating a kind of systemic racism. Homopho- it, it dealt with homophobia too, but it was really about understanding um, systemic racism and the pliability of the black buck stereotype in American culture, which I have seen become even more pliable with um, Herschel Walker. And as we're talking right. to one another, that looks like it's heading to a, a, heading to a runoff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh. And I didn't know, I, I finished my book. I had become a professor at Northwestern. Um, often when you become professors, you have to write uh, academic books, right. which some are, are really wonderful, but um, a lot of them don't get widely read and are very densely written, but it's part of the process to get tenure that you have to write uh, an right. academic book. But I found out when I arrived at Northwestern that since my home line was in the journalism school, I could actually write a trade book. Oh. So I was, yeah. So I was starting to think about what's the book going to look like? Is it really going to be a story about this court case? Is it going to be about how it interacts with the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, I was at sort of an impasse with some possibilities for the book when I signed with my current and wonderful agent, Tanya McKinnon. And then COVID hit and nobody knew what was going to happen. I didn't know, you know, am I still going to have a job at Northwestern as the, you know, last person hired? Is there still going to be book publishing? You know, is every, I mean, this is like, you know, you remember those first few weeks, like none of us knew what was going to happen. And Tanya said, I very smartly, she said, I think people are going to run out of things to watch on Netflix Mm -hmm. and they're going to start buying books, which is exactly what happened. You know, book sales went up and she had, she had not done any, she hadn't really been in touch with people yet. Um, she hadn't done any business in you know those first couple of weeks. And she said, send me your dissertation again. And she looked at it and said, look at that. You know, the last chapter is called The Viral Underclass. That's sort of where I ended up in my somewhat technical dissertation. And she said, use that as an analytic to think about how you could write about the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, can we sell this as a book? That's not going to be a flash in the pan COVID book of which she predicted also accurately that there yeah. would be a bunch. I think probably, unfortunately, the the best selling of them is Robert Kennedy's anti-vaccination book. Oh, um, we're going to get Ken- there too. Robert Kennedy <laughs> Jr., I should say, yeah. not, not his father. Um, and, you know, she said, think about that as, as a way that you could use an analytic. And so that's what I kind of did. I stepped back and said, what, like, what is it about the, the class dynamics and this analytic, this way of thinking that can help explain why these two very, very different viruses are wreaking havoc in a kind of predictable set of people, even though their modes of transmission are, are very different. The time scale they happen across is very different. AIDS, HIV and AIDS are very slow acting, relatively speaking. Um, you know, compared to COVID, that right. take 10 to 15 years to get seriously sick or die, as opposed to we're seeing people sometimes die in less than two weeks, you know, right. w- with COVID. And so I sat back and rewrote a new proposal in about two weeks, wow. kind of thinking about what are the, like, what are the vectors? What are the things that are bringing this together? And some of it was very, um, very much about prediction. You know, I didn't know what was going to happen. 
Uh, I didn't know how I would be able to report about COVID, but I left open the lines of how these vectors would potentially lead me there. And for me, it was also a bit of, I would say, personal salvation in that I appreciate being able to write through things. Mm. And so I did not have a, I started writing for Scientific American a few months later, but I didn't have sort of a standing outlet at the time. And so I was very excited when, you know, Celadon saw what the book could be. My uh, editor and publisher, Jamie Rabe, um, and then gave me the resources to to write this book. And I really appreciated having a way to direct my energy and to be able to try to chronicle what was happening around me. I, you know, I was alive when, barely, you know, when AIDS cases started to be known in the U.S., but I was a child through it. Uh, and I'd written about that pandemic in a very different time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from its early years. I wrote about it after medication was available and how it was still affecting a viral underclass. Um, but I appreciated having the ability to, in real time, be able to try to document and preserve some of what was happening. And I knew that I was going to write about it in three registers. I wanted it to be journalistic, um, somewhat scientific and scholarly, drawing on on my research on HIV and AIDS, and also um, memoir and personal. Um, the mix ended up being different. And I remember when, when you posted about it, you said you thought that um, the mix was a little off. And I thought that it wasn't, I thought that actually I was going to be more of a background character. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of how personal, including the death of my, you know, one of my editors, yeah. uh, I ended up writing a lot more personally. And a lot of that was very frightening and, and difficult for me. Yeah. Um, but I'm really glad that I had the ability to be able to, um, to be able to write about uh, these things together. Um, So that's kind of how the book came together and the map for it. It started out with like eight vectors. It became 10 and eventually there were 12. My editors were very kind in giving me the space for that. (laughs) I love the vectors. I mean, let me just read off the vectors to people just so that they know, because these are kind of like the, the chapters in which you frame the book. And I think to what your point, to what you were saying before, what's really interesting about, about how you framed it is like, for things that come later or for the next virus or the next pandemic, this framework still holds. And like you were able to use it and go backwards too for other things that had come before HIV. And I think that that's really what is so powerful about the book is like the framework holds and the diseases and the viruses, they may come and hopefully go, but like that, that this makes sense. And so the vectors that you presented were racism, individual shame, capitalism, the law, austerity, borders, the liberal carceral state, unequal prophylaxis, ableism, speciesism, the myth of white immunity, and collective punishment. So we won't get into all of those things. I just wanted to let people understand what the vectors were. Um, I want to go back for a second and talk about Michael Johnson because we mentioned him a few times. He was a young man, a college student who was HIV positive and was convicted to two like 30-year sentences for infecting other people with HIV. And obviously, that is a criminalization of someone's sex uh, or sexual activity. Um, But I want to know why this story to you felt like the right 
center for the book because it, it you go back to it you know throughout the book you you bring in pieces of the story throughout from the beginning to the end so why this story were there other stories that you thought would be that could have done that work or was this one just like this is it for me it was always this is it i mean my editors um initially i think they wanted me to consider having that role uh filled by lorena borjas mm. who i do try to write about but i i just didn't know her story as much and mm-hmm. and i very much uh, at a, I, I very much credit cicely van buren friedman one of my my closest editors on the book at celadon had a really good idea i won't give it away but, okay. <laughs> but she um you know but she had a really good way of intertwining michael's story and lorena's story at the end of the book mm-hmm. um which i think works yeah but for me this was always the story i've written about interracial sex for most of my adult life <laughs> my parents were an interracial couple it was illegal for them to get married when they met in nebraska um, so I've long thought about the ways that interracial sex and interracial desire are, are criminalized along various axes for much of my writing career. And I think this is actually going to have a lot to do with, with my next book, too. Um, and it was through that that a really wonderful editor named Mark Schufs, who had written about HIV for decades, I think, since it was called Grid before it had a name, um, was coming in to start an investigative unit at BuzzFeed News. And, and he came to me. Uh, about this Tiger Mandingo case, as as we called it early on, and as it's still called in lots of ways, that this young man whose screen name on Grinder, which was relatively new, or it was certainly new to public conversation, mm-hmm. you know, used this this name Tiger Mandingo that, of course, evokes lots of fears around uh, interracial sex, right. um, and that he had been arrested. Uh, and accused of transmitting and exposing people to HIV. And one of the details that has survived various ways I've written about this over the years, and I think it was Mark's first observation, is that there were stories about him in Australia, like the way that he flared up in global viral news was as if he posed a menace to the health of the world. And HIV at the time, like 35 to 40 million people globally were living with HIV. There's nothing about any one person that you can blame in this way, certainly not an American college student. And so from that time, Michael entrusted me to tell a story. I met with him in jail. very in a very different way than he had been presented in the news. And I use sort of news and quotes because the stories are mostly just regurgitation of prosecutors talking points. No one had interviewed anybody. But when I met him, he was not intending to give anyone HIV. He's always maintained that he told people that he was uh, HIV positive, Mm -hmm. Uh, but certainly he was not intending to give anyone HIV. And as I learned about this, I didn't know about the subject at all that the laws themselves are a huge barrier to HIV prevention Hmm. and what we want with HIV or monkeypox or COVID or anything that's infectious. We want people to feel safe coming forward, to know that they're not going to be punished, to know that they're going to be supported. This is a real ongoing problem with COVID and and with monkeypox. You you know, if people know that they're going to have to stay home for five or 10 days and not get paid, they're, you know, if if choices between hunger and homelessness, you know, not paying your rent or kind of sucking it up and trying to hide your symptoms, that's what you're going to do when you don't have economic support. You know, we want people to feel safe coming forward. And so these laws make it difficult to do so. When he eventually got prosecuted and sentenced to, as you said, like it was, it was originally two 30-year sentences, the judge let him serve them concurrently. 
so that they, you know, would only be 30 years only or 30 years. Year. You know, the, the HIV prevention people I worked with in that town, like had an enormously harder time getting young black men who are most at risk for HIV tested because if you don't know, right, then you're positive, not to blame. You can't ever be blamed for it. Yeah. Um, and so once you know, your name can always be, anyone can tell for the rest of your life, say they didn't tell me. Um, right. The other part of it that I found really disastrous was that there was never any actually scientific proof that in the one case that was involved that he'd actually transmitted the virus to mm. him um, in the way that a murder trial, and I, I think that they should be thought of similarly because his sentence was longer than in the average uh, sentence for second degree murder in Missouri. <sighs> Jesus. You know, in a murder trial, you would like automatically do DNA evidence. Right. You have to know. Yeah. There's the equivalent here would be doing RNA sequencing. That was never done. So okay. how it actually even transmitted is is unclear. Uh, but the laws are, they're really stigmatizing and they include things that exposure well, where, you know, it never happened. Four of the, the, four of the five people involved with the initial round of convictions, it was just about exposure. Spitting has long been one of on the list of ways that people can be prosecuted. And we know that HIV doesn't move through saliva. And while I was reporting this over the years, there was this rise of the quote unquote blue lives matter laws that were supposed to protect police officers in the black lives matter era. And the most insidious of them added sentencing enhancement around HIV to say that if somebody was arrested who had HIV and a police officer, you know, bashes their head into sidewalk and they start bleeding no. and they haven't disclosed their HIV status, they could be prosecuted with attempted murder of the police no. officer as a capital crime. Uh, and so like these, these are so horrible. And just so that was the case that I started with. And I, and I thought you know, I love getting to talk about craft because I, I don't get to do that often. You know, there were various versions of writing in the book where I thought maybe the first act of the book is about Michael. Um, there was a completely different version of it before this one where I was really writing more about Michael Michael Brown, who was killed in Ferguson, mm-hmm. and Michael Johnson. But what I finally did was create a, a, several different temporal lines. There's There's kind of one from early AIDS to the present over about 40 years. In some ways, I'm going before that because I'm explaining about the role of the transatlantic slave trade, a lot of matters of race and health. Um, but the book, also, I think the hardest timeline in the book is over the period of about seven years where I'm showing from Michael's arrest until eventually he gets out of prison and COVID begins. And that's right. a period of about seven years. Um, and so I did decide that I broke the book into four acts and each of the acts begins with a part of Michael's life. We see mm-hmm. it about two years apart. We see him getting arrested. Two years later, we see the trial. Two years later, we see that uh, his sentence gets overturned. And then finally, at the end of the book, he gets out of prison. Although we also pair, I pair that up with with what happens with Lorena Borjas and right. show that um, Michael's story is a happy one. I'm very happy that he's out of prison. He's enjoying his life. He's um, seems, and we're still in touch. He seems to be a relatively happy young man, even though he lost most of his 20s in prison. Right. Um, but he gets out. But that's really the, unfortunately, that's the, exception, not the rule that someone like him gets out. Um, And so I wanted to come back to a story, a sort of a through line to think about when does racism come up? When does individual responsibility come up? When, you know, is it, I think for me, one of the biggest moves out of reporting his story and and my dissertation work was saying like, this happens to white people too. Um, And illustrating the ways I've seen that happen outside of the United States and also how things happen 
Asia and Africa. But I, his story is the one that I keep coming back to, um, both because it's the one I know the most. I think it exposes certainly more than anything else I've reported the horrible systemic problems in our country, but it does uh, improbably have kind of a happy ending. Um, mm. And it's very rare as a journalist that you could get, you really get to see the end of a story and have right. you know kind of a happy ending to it. Um, so that's why I kept coming back to that story and, and coming and going from what it revealed over this period of time. And then you get, you know it gets out right before COVID. Right. Um, so right. then we kind of go through it again. Right. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, we're back from our break. I want to ask you about the criminalization of sickness, of uh, being ill. I want to talk, so it sort of has to do also with the individualism that we talk about a lot. I'm, I'm curious, like, if being sick makes you a 
horrible, inadequate human being, whether that's with COVID or HIV or whatever, if it means that you're weak and you're bad and you failed in a lot of senses, especially with COVID, there's this feeling like if you get COVID, you failed. How come we are not putting that same kind of pressure on people who are actively not taking precautions? Like, how come there isn't that same shame and guilt being put on people who are actively anti-mask, actively anti-vax? How does that make sense? Because if getting sick means that you're a failure and you're a horrible person and you're you're you should die, doesn't actively not protecting yourself lead to that? And therefore, shouldn't those people be seen on that same spectrum? Obviously, I'm being very tongue in cheek. I don't believe that if you right. get COVID, you're I a bad person. Yes. I just want people at home <laughs> to know. But like that's sort of how it's the conversation is. So I'm wondering like why the prophylaxis part of it doesn't lead you to being a terrible person, the anti-prophylaxis. These things, you know, they they so much intersect with race and class and gender. A part of the book that ended up getting cut back a fair amount because I just didn't have room to do it justice, particularly in comparison to an entire book written about it much well, was the story of Mary Mellon, who's known as Typhoid Mary. Mm-hmm. So often what happens is the people who come into our purview as having these viruses, it's very race, class, gendered, national. Mary Mallon, you know, Typhoid Mary, she was a uh, Irish immigrant. I think that there was, she wasn't married. So there's, I think, some latent mm. homophobia in there as well. She was lower working class. And so those kinds of people are always blamed more, much more so. You know, it's interesting. Historically, when you look at how viruses move, they very, very rarely affect the upper class more. Polio, a little bit in the United States at one point, but briefly. Syphilis in the Victorian era was amongst the ruling class, but those are really unusual. For the most part, viruses move much more among the lower class people, certainly ultimately. With a couple of our recent pandemics, including COVID and monkeypox, you see it first moving amongst people who can move, uh, who can afford to fly. You know, there's movement around flight. But then quickly, those people, because they can afford to fly, are also the ones most likely to get medication and vaccination. And so it cycles out of their social networks and then it settles into the, you know, the economically lower classes, very much happening with with monkeypox now. At the same time, even though that movement might be happening through people who can afford to fly, migrants are often blamed. Mm-hmm. for. And in the United States right now, we do have the situation where Title 42 is still being used that allows for the exported deportation of migrants out of the U.S. under the guise that they are the most likely to be carrying disease. And so even as there are almost no COVID protocols from the national government right now, the, the, the government, to come back to your point, you know, cannot even say the word mass. Rochelle Walensky was just out of work for 18 days with COVID, the CDC director, right. and didn't mention mass right before in her tweet about dealing with that RSV and flu, and won't talk about masking since. But migrants are very much uh, still blamed for these things. Queers, trans people, people of color um, have long been blamed for this. So there are, you know, Michael Johnson is a a very good, isn't the right word. Um, He's a very powerful illustration of how this dynamic plays out. 40 million people in the world have HIV, but here is this black, sexually active, gay, mostly illiterate at the time, college wrestler who's a good, convenient scapegoat for right. 
carrying the anxieties of everybody. And as I write about in the book, and Michael will say himself, he sees himself as having responsibility in his own story. He wants to have responsibility. Right. Um, but I think that it is not fair for him to be carrying everybody's responsibility. Mm. And so that's what will happen. I, you know, I write in the book at, in, in these key moments, actually in the same neighborhood where the horrible stampede happened uh, in Seoul, uh, I think just last Halloween weekend from when we're recording, that was where that neighborhood is also a very gay neighborhood. And it's where an outbreak, like kind of Korea's second big outbreak of COVID happened mm. in 2020 or 2020 or 2021. I'm forgetting. I think it's 2020. And because it was a gay neighborhood that has all the stigma on it, people start conflating. This is something, you know, that gay people are doing. The bathhouse in the neighborhood and the gay bars were extremely forthcoming and helpful with contact tracers as similar institutions have been extremely helpful with dealing with monkeypox, more so than the federal government in the U.S. Right, right. But the stigma of it quickly conflates together difference, queerness, difference, transness, or migrant nature as showing why why we think of these things together. Um, and in a project I can't quite talk about yet. It's okay. not, not yet public. <laughs> uh, but I've been watching a lot of I've been watching a lot of movies about viruses and I'm seeing that this is all uh, this is such a common thing in, in mm -hmm. movies that either deal with zombies or viruses that like often migrants are the people who are seen to be bringing these viruses in. So in that way I think that what you were asking the there there are often scapegoats who are seen this way. But if somebody is powerful and anti-vax or powerful and anti-mask, they are not blamed as much. In the early days of COVID in the U.S., like there were these police moments where police were like arresting, writing tickets or arresting people for not wearing masks. And they're beating the shit exclusively out of black people wherever, right. well, wherever course. the data was kept, wherever the data was kept. Of course, that, that tracks very on brand for them. So but basically what I'm hearing you say is that the... And I think like, I mean, I think this is pretty clear in the book, but that a lot of the systems that are in place are there to continue to like exacerbate the viral underclass. Like it's not there. We're not actually trying to eradicate this. Like it's part, it's important no. to the United States to have a viral underclass for a lot of reasons, including to have a large portion of scapegoats. I think Part of what I learned in writing the book is obviously I'm interested in viruses, but right. um, but I think that they just illustrate that there is an underclass in the U.S. U.S. economically right. and politically creates multiple classes, a ruling class, working class, proletariat, and right. an underclass. The underclass is always going to be produced by the U.S. The, and the viral nature of it perpetuates itself, but also is just a way of seeing how the U.S. works. Right. Um, and it's been real, you know, as we're speaking, we're just a couple of days after the midterm elections. And I was horrified that the, you know, that COVID was a non-issue, you know, 830,000 people have died of COVID since it's the incredible. last election, 650,000 under Biden, 12,000 in the last month. You know, if the current numbers held that I looked at yesterday, it looks like we'll come in between 10 to 11,000 deaths this month. And it was a non-issue. It simply does not exist. Yeah. Um, and the people who are dying are poor and elderly. Deaths in nursing homes have gone up fourfold oh um, in the last few months. And it is just something that is not talked about. So yeah, like this is what the US produces. We we, right. we produce an, an, an underclass and a viral underclass through our American way of life. And, and I, one of the things I'm like trying to work through in the book is that a lot of the vectors haven't changed. You know, Biden was came in saying the right things, uh, says nothing now, you know, right. but came in saying the right things, but 
the U.S. incarcerates the same number of people or more than it did under Trump. And so the disparities we see that go along with incarceration are unchanged in some cases are getting worse in some ways. Right. Do you feel like having a viral underclass like can lead to skepticism in the broader culture? And if so, what does that look like when it comes to anti-vaxxers? Yeah, I think that um, I know so many people who are dealing with this in painful ways in their own family, and I've I've begun to do so as well. Yeah. I there people are anti-vax for a variety of reasons in different countries, but the dominant way it came into the modern U.S. Um, as I write about in the book, is by way of a British doctor named uh, Andrew Wakefield, who started this myth that MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines cause autism. This part of the book was one of the most enraging parts of the book for me. Like, even like ha- having to have to talk about this right now, I'm like getting hot. Anyway, sorry, yeah. continue. <laughs> That's why I know I get angry too, you know, that Jenny McCarthy plays, you know, a role in the Baywatch. And like Kirstie Alley, right? Wasn't <laughs> yeah, yeah. she fucking, Jesus Christ. Race people. Um, but I think it's interesting because, you know, vaccination rates, the, the, there was a lot of hand wringing that black people wouldn't get the vaccines. Right. Um, the stru- there's structural problems to poor and black and brown people getting vaccines. But actually, when you deal with those, the rates come in a little higher. Black and brown people are slightly higher vaccinated than white people in the U.S. With and then that has come through an enormous amount of muscle put in through, you know, community groups to make them available. But when they are available, people take them. Uh, it's slightly higher rates than white people. The hesitancy around vaccines uh, comes from wealthy white people. Malibu, near where I grew up, you know, Malibu moms in California, having like a very white supremacist, like Nazi-like ableism that my child's genes are so good, they don't need to be dealt with with vaccines. Um, And something that happened, this I'll probably write about in, in the little bit I'll add in the paperback edition, something very similar has been said by Leanna Wen, uh, who is a very controversial public health person who's on CNN and writes for the Washington Post. And she said she a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, that she would stop masking her child because that was going to harm his speech development. He wasn't going to learn how to speak. And both of these things are untrue. Like vaccines do not cause autism. Masks do not cause speech development. Children who are blind learn speech at exactly, you know, the same right. speed as sighted right. children. Oh, because she's saying, like, they can't see. Yeah, he can't see. And so that's that's making him, you know, quote, unquote, slow. But can't um, he still wear a mask if other people aren't? Wouldn't he still be right, able to yeah. see? <laughs> but she, like, wanted him in a classroom. Where I, hate I hate people. I hate people. It's insane. Um, uh-huh. So, yeah, I'll just say it again. Like, neither of these things are true. Untrue. Because autism, the, the masks don't cause speech development. But... Using that logic, the way that these parents are thinking, that what they're saying in essence is being disabled is so bad. Like the idea of being autistic or maybe mm-hmm. needing longer with speech is so disgusting mm-hmm. that I would rather risk my child's life and mm-hmm. risk the, the lives of other children to avoid dealing with disability in some way. Right. Um, and so that's one of the ways that we really have vaccine hesitancy in this country. It's very classed. It's very ableist. It has a, you know, dominant gene thinking you know, ability of, of what right. my child can do and your child can't do. And it's really depressing. And it was also for me, like one of the things that was most angering to write. And actually my editor, it wasn't in my original proposal. My editor asked me to 
weave into that. And I found it really angering to do so. And But in terms of your question of it spilling into the wider society, the way that I understand it a bit, and I had like my one of my sisters on the white side of my family, um, uh, yeah, there's been no sort of vaccine hesitancy on the black side of my family, right. but uh, did not come to my book reading in, in, in our hometown uh, because I hear she's, you know, condensed the vaccine is killing all these people. Um, and in my most generous thinking about this, she was left like to die by the stage at one point. She had a good job. It was cut in budget cuts and her family was thrown off the cliff. You know, they, they lost their health insurance. They lost almost everything. And so I do think in my most generous attempt to be sympathetic that if you are a person who's been involved in our fucked up healthcare system in the US and you got cancer and the system said you're on your own um, or you lost your job and you lost your health insurance and couldn't get the mental health care or the heart medication or insulin or, you know, and you're told you're on your own. Then when that same system comes to you and says, well, take this thing because it's going to help you, but you really should do it because you have to help everyone else. I understand people being like, screw you. Like, you know, the system left me for dead. Why should I do something that's probably not going to kill me because I see myself as being healthy. Um, And I should do this to protect other people when everyone else said, you know, you have cancer, you're on your own. And that I think is a, that is like a real problem of our system in the U S that they deal with other things in the UK or other countries, but they don't deal with that. Like they're not dealing with, you can go to the NHS and get your monkeypox or COVID shot. You could be hospitalized for any of these things. You're not going to walk out with a $95,000 hospital bill. Right, and right. so like, because the point of interaction with so many people in healthcare in the US is harm and punishment, you are punished mm-hmm. for getting sick, mm-hmm. you know, economically and socially that creates a real problem. And my, my background has not been as much international public health, but I've of course been learning a lot about it the past couple of years. And something that I found most fascinating for my colleagues is a, a predictor of how countries did with COVID wasn't how rich or poor they were. And in, in, in one metric, the US is the richest country in the world and then the worst with COVID. The, the best predictor was actually what percent our country's spending on preventative medicine within the budgets that they have. Mm. And so you'll have like very, very poor countries, um, but they put a lot of their money into the prevention of malaria, West Nile virus, Ebola, things like that. And then their populations have a ongoing for years or decades relationship with Mm. public health people who, if you've been like listening to somebody and they've been seeing this in Uganda now, you know, like people have been doing Ebola work for decades there, and then they're there, and the infrastructure's there when there's a flare-up. And if right. those same people say to you, oh, th- now there's this other thing you need to wear a mask for it, people are inclined to do so. The right. U.S., like, we spend almost all of our money in the emergency rooms. There's no relationship between right. the health system and people, and we're, like, very much lurching from disaster to disaster, and then, as as now, like, letting go of almost all of our infrastructure from the last disaster until the next one needs to come up. Um, and that does create a lot of mistrust in the wider society that has a deleterious effect on the public health overall. Yeah. And I think like, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I have so many other questions. I'm like stressed out because I'm like, I'm not going to get to everything. But um, I think what's interesting about what you're saying also, I do think has a lot to do. Well, let me backtrack. This month we had on uh, Mariam Kaba to talk on the show. And then at the end of the month, she and I, or next, 
the week after everyone listens to this, we're going to be discussing a book called Prison by Any Other Name, which is all about like reform. And I think one of the things about like abolition work and, and you know, defund police, abolish police, all that stuff is that it's really connected to what you're talking about. Like the, the viral underclass wall, like, like you said, the center for you is the virus part of it because that's the work that you do. The underclass part of it is really the key, right? It's like people yeah. who don't have access to healthcare, support, um, job security, housing, uh, any of those things. They don't have a relationship with a doctor that yeah. they trust, that they know that isn't just whoever's on call when they need them at the emergency room. And I think like just thinking about the work that you do and thinking about what we've been thinking about on the show this month is like really helpful. And of course, then again, really frustrating. And I like, it's like these things are all so connected and it, and it really is about like, we haven't imagined or reimagined what community can and should look like if we want to be healthy and safe as much as possible, right? Like, because it's not what you're saying isn't that like, if we have these things, we'll never have another pandemic. It's not that. It's just that if we have these things, we'll be able to handle a pandemic and we'll be able to mitigate the amount of people who are severely ill or die or or can't get access or lose fit, like all of these things that make it more challenging to be a human in the face of a pandemic. I have one more kind of question for you, and then I want to move a little bit into processing process stuff. How do you feel like your perspective as a black queer man is unique to understanding uh, viral underclass, the viral underclass or the work that you do? And do you feel like I, I mean, I don't know this to be true, but I have to imagine that like in a lot of sciences, it's a lot of white guys. So mm -hmm. do you feel <laughs> I don't I don't have like the facts and figures. Yeah. It's just an assumption. But do you feel Your hypothesis like <laughs> is correct? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I also went to NYU, so I yeah. feel like great education. <laughs> do you feel like you your work is taken seriously? Do you feel appreciated? Do you feel like your perspectives are seen and heard or do you feel like you struggle to be to like stick your foot in the door and make carve out space? For your identities, yeah, I would say both. Um, you know, it depends on the, the time of day <laughs> or the day. Um, you know, I, I think that once I understood that if one and two black gay men are projected to become HIV positive, that just gives a very very different orientation to this virus. That one that so many people think is not really an issue now. A good thing, I don't know if good is the right word, but a positive thing, there are a number of positive things that have come out of the COVID-19 pandemic. One of which is uh, the general public having much more knowledge about AIDS history and mm. how that can inform us. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, the politics and the culture that came out of dealing with AIDS were some of the most important of US history. Uh, and so I, I love Miriam's work and, um, prison abolition and mutual care and things like that. And there's been a, an exponential rise in consciousness around those mm -hmm. things because of the COVID-19 pandemic, which will bear fruit even in ways that might not be obvious now. Mm. But young people who've you know learned this, like this is going to, this is going to uh, feed them for the rest of their lives and the, yeah. the kind of work that they do. And so, you know, I think when you're somebody, I'm, I'm HIV negative or I was the last time I tested, but when you're someone who lives in relationship with this kind of virus and understand like it happens to one out of every two of us mm -hmm. that not only affects you or me interpersonally, that makes me look at a case like Michael Johnson's and say, well, how can you think 
Like, how can you want to throw someone in prison for something that they're 50, 50 odds of getting? Right. Um, and, and I used to think that if one and two, you know, blonde white women were likely to be an HIV positive in their lifetime, that that would be like the lead in the news all the time. Yeah. Now I'm a little confused. Like, I don't know what to make <laughs> of how we can have a pediatric ERs bursting with COVID, yeah. RSV, and flu and have relatively little interest. So I'm, I'm not sure what to make of how we, uh, yeah. how the society values different kinds of people right now. But I do think that I'm able to get heard some of the time. It's often a fight. You know, of course, there's all kinds of microaggressions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad that I've, you know, gotten a lot of support with um, writing this book. And I do, you know, I, I was giving grand rounds where you address either yeah. public health or, or medical school faculty or staffs of hospitals. And I was in one where they were very dismissive hmm. uh, in a lot of their questions, which I found from other Black um, journalists and PR and public health people that they've had that experience as well. And that made me think about how, you know, how and when people like me get taken seriously. But one of the questions that really s- stuck with me was, uh, I think they were an MD saying, you know, what you're talking about, this just could be about poverty, right? And I was like, no, like I just explicitly talked about how how certain things with race actually track differently than, than straight up economics. And they were saying like, and, and you know, couldn't this just be like about heart disease or any clinical disease, like why viruses? And I felt like, well, you didn't listen to how I came into this <laughs> through the story of a virus. Right. But to me, like there is something, and I think this is where I as a black gay man who thinks about HIV a lot. And I, you know, many of my boyfriends have been HIV positive. And so it's just something that I have negotiated in my life. Mm-hmm. There is explicit knowledge, I think is, queer people and black queer people that is helpful for the world to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the filmmaker Marlon Riggs, I highly recommend if you haven't seen his work, Tongues Untied. He made these movies before he died of AIDS with all these other black gay poets who were all HIV positive. Almost everyone in the movies died, mm-hmm. you know, in the early 90s. They're making them in the late 80s and early 90s before there were any drugs. And sitting with that existential knowledge and understanding that your body is not only your own but you are in you are in relationship with all these other bodies where this terrible thing is happening that to me is very explicitly useful information mm-hmm. for understanding how to deal with public health for understanding how to deal with climate change like, you know mm-hmm. we cannot only see our destinies as we typically are socialized to do so in the US is we're all on our own individual hero's journey and right. so that way, I don't know if I get taken seriously, but I sort of demand to be taken right. seriously right. that there's like something very special that we benefit from. And the queer activists who did work with ACT UP and those kinds of organizations forced changes in the ways mm-hmm. that the FDA, the federal government, and corporations test and distribute medication such that it saved millions or tens of millions of lives. Like the fact that we're vaccinated um, would not have been possible before this kind of activism happened around that that saved so many people's lives. So in that way, there is something special about viruses themselves, even though they're, you know, they're illustrating these dynamics that friends of mine, Louise Seamster, who writes about water, Melissa Girard-Grant, who writes about sex work, Zach Siegel, who writes about drug use, we're all like dealing with the same factors around racism and homophobia and capitalism through the prism of water or viruses or whatever. Um, But I think as a black gay man, what I can bring to the table is having dealt with this 
seriously intellectually but also personally yeah. um and understanding and evangelizing and demanding that you know that my ancestors uh, and the work that they did be acknowledged for the very positive role it's had in american history and that it can be a really powerful guide for mm -hmm. understanding how to navigate the sometimes insurmountable feeling problems in our world i'm going to do a really hard shift how do you write where are you? How many hours a day? Is there music <laughs> or no? Do you have snacks and beverages? Tell me about it. I love crafting. So I, <laughs> I, I write not at all right now. I mean, okay. I had, I had largely, I'm teaching, I teach about 20 weeks a year. Um, I'm teaching at Northwestern and I've done about 80, 85 uh, live events or interviews since oh August 2nd. So I'm very, like I, I had sort of budget, like, you know, I'm just going right. to be telling people about the book right now. I usually try to write once a month for Scientific American. I haven't even done that right now. And I'm finishing up the touching, uh, the polishing off the, the stuff for my next book proposal. But I prefer to write, um, I think because I was a staff writer at the Village Voice for a long time, I really like to write like a job starting in the morning and going till the evening. If I'm if I'm bothered by nothing else as I was at certain points of the pandemic, I can write for like 12 or 14 or 16 wow. hours a day straight. But I, I try to, for the most part, teach in the weeks I'm teaching and then just write in the weeks that I'm not teaching or doing other things. I have some like funny quirks I've developed over the years. I, I, <laughs> I love to write on a Mac, but then edit on a PC. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> um, this is that awesome. That goes back to my days <laughs> at the Village Voice where I would write from home on my Mac and then I would go into the office oh, to I edit see. on the PC. Um, I Something that's been very hard in the pandemic because I very much like going, I don't like writing at home. I like to go to my office or to a library. Got it. Um, so that was hard. I did get to, I lived in Puerto Rico for a few months in the pandemic and I finished writing the book there and I got to look at the ocean while I wrote. So that was really nice. wonderful. Um, but for the most part, I really like to go um, and I can just like turn on my computer at eight and force myself to have to stop for lunch. But like, I can just write straight until like six o'clock. Um, Do you have snacks and beverages while you're writing? Yeah, I'll have like nuts and things like that. Um, like sort of protein things. Okay. Music I can rarely listen to while I write. Mm -hmm. I write about I've written about Philip Glass a lot, mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes his music or Steve Reich's music for eighteen musicians I can listen to. But I'll listen to that more when I'm editing. Okay. But usually when I'm writing, it's quiet. And what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Most of them, but um, <laughs> but I would say probably the. Um, the one that comes to mind right now is like epidemiologically. Wow. <laughs> and I know you're writing that a lot. So I that am. sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> For me, that's never coming up. I'm like, it's never happening. But I am a terrible speller, so I could never spell that. Um, I will be very like upfront that, and I tell, tell my students this, that I was blessed to work in professional press and have copy editors. Mm. Uh, and I leave a lot to them. And then I also wrote for The Guardian where I always knew the copy would have to be changed because I could not be switching back and forth between British and American English. Oh, I see. Um, so my ass is routinely saved by copy editors. Yeah. Oh my God. What a dream. Um, you went to Tisch for undergrad. I did. As did I. What did you study? 
Uh, I yeah, I went to NYU. Try I did my PhD there many years later, but uh, I was uh, uh, started out in dramatic writing, okay. where I was studying screenwriting, and then I also double majored in film and TV production uh, right. in the '90s. What did you study, Tish? I was a theater major. So, in which an, studio, or is it was it? I did Strasbourg Classical uh-huh. and ETW. So I okay. moved around a little bit. Um, but whenever I see a fellow Tishy, I have to know what they studied. Uh- <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really like I'm I'm finally coming back into some film stuff 20 years later. Oh, wow, cool. Um, but I very much feel like the way that I learned to I learned about dramatic structure in film very much influenced like how I became a feature writer mm. and then eventually how I wrote my book. Like the the ways that I learned that scene construction um is is very influential to the work I've done. I love that. I there's so many things that I feel like I learned. Uh, at Tish that I have carried with me into the work that I do now, even though I never was like a book person in college, you know, <laughs> but reading a script, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know what, a, you know what a good story is if you study theater, dramatic arts, like, yes. you know, when it hits. Anyways, I do want to ask you this. What's not in this book that you wish was or could have been or could be? I wish I'd gotten to travel more because I got, um, when I was writing the book because I got a good advance and I have a professor job, but there was a pandemic. Right. Um, so like the chapter that I wrote in West Virginia, I tried to, there were two different times I was supposed to go mm. and both times got canceled because of COVID, but that's just part of what this time in the world is. Mm-hmm. And I wish that I had, and I finally got to meet her later, Alice Wong, who's one of my favorite mm. uh, writers and thinkers in, in the world. You know, I interviewed her by zoom. I got to finally meet her in person later more recently i saw that on your instagram i thought it was very cool because she's in the book you know in my mind i would get to like write a a book and like get to travel around and interview everyone Mm -hmm. face to face and a lot of stuff was through zoom just because of you know the Mm -hmm. pandemic and you know there i I go back and forth on i get the (laughs) i usually get like the same criticism from academics about like certain things that i haven't gone into more depth with around class Mm -hmm. the history around some of the the arguments around the underclass, which Mm -hmm. has a a particular background in sociology. I know lots Mm -hmm. of sociologists, but for the most part, you know, I didn't, I'm very happy that I got to write the kind of book I did. And I wrote Mm -hmm. for the, um, I wrote for the guardian for years. And my general framework was I have people's attention for a very limited amount of time. And I want to get as much in at as high a level as I can pull them in the amount of time I have, which I got to do with this book. Yeah. And there are ways that I wish I could have like written a bit more in depth about capitalism or about kind of some of the social theory. But mm-hmm. I I feel like I, I got to share the right amount with as wide an audience as possible. But the thing I, I probably feel the saddest about was in the, the chapter in West Virginia, I wish I'd gotten to... Um, I had I had more conversations with people that I talked that I wish I got into and I wish I'd just gotten to physically spend time because that's mm-hmm. the only chapter where I wasn't like I, I had not been there before the pandemic. Right. Right. Um for people who love the viral underclass, what are a few books that you might recommend to them that are in conversation with your work? I would suggest um Elite Capture, um, mm-hmm. which is a really wonderful philosophy book. Beth Macy's Raising Lazarus, oh. um, which I, she also wrote Dope Sick, which mm-hmm. the Hulu series is based on. And she and I were just did a convo together and it was like being in a house on fire. We got, <laughs> got along really great. Linda Villarosa's Under the Skin, which okay. she's also writing a bit about West Virginia. And we've been in conversation for years and a uh, really beautiful book about um, health disparities, also involving... COVID and HIV, but also uh, Black 
maternal mortality and infant mm-hmm. mortality. Mm-hmm. Hugh Ryan's the Women's House of Detention, which is a gorgeous book about the history of an, a women's jail in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. And I think um, in a, some similar ways that I do is dealing with LGBTQ history in the way that intersects with poverty and incarceration. Um, and unfortunately, our community does not always lift up those stories the most. Kiese Lehman's Heavy was very helpful for me in thinking about how I wanted to write about my own part of the story. Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine was very influential to me. And Eric Schlosser's Fast Food Nation, which I read like 20 years ago, uh, very much influenced the way I wrote the chapter about speciesism. And it still really holds up. But I feel very grateful. Like there are a lot of people doing really great public health work. And it's been a joy to get to be in conversation with some of them in the past few months. I love that. Okay. Before I ask you the last question, I'm just going to tell people this because I know someone will DM me and ask. I listened to the audio book too. I listened to part of the book on the audio. Stephen reads it. It's very, very good. So if you're nervous about nonfiction, because I know some of you are, even though I try to tell you not to be, <laughs> you can listen to this on audio and you will understand it. And it's not too high level or complex because I know sometimes with audio, with nonfiction, people get all the whole thing. So if you're interested in the audiobook, I am endorsing the audiobook as well as the print copy. Also for people who are super sciencey, smart brained. My husband, who is a physician, loved the book as much as I did, a person who cannot add without a calculator. So it's really like it really does cover a wide audience. So if you're at all curious about the viral underclass, which you all should be because it's affecting all of us right now in COVID, no matter where you are, check it out. And now for my final question, if you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? I think I would want it to be my father. Um, He died when I was 24. Four, and he was very much uh, influential in my life as a writer, but he died before I ever published anything. Mm-hmm. So um, I very much wish I could have shared this with him. And he was extremely political, also a teacher. Not an exact, I mean, some of the same issues as me, but he died before I got to tell him I was gay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I wish that he could read it. I hope in some plane of existence he is he aware is. of it um, yeah. because he's very much in the DNA of this book about RNA. <laughs> I love that. Um, Steven, thank you so much for being here. This was such a treat. Thank you. I um, I really appreciate everything you do. KSA first put you on my radar and, um, and just really appreciate what you've done, not just for my book, but your generosity and enthusiasm um, for all kinds of books, particularly from um, people of color and queer people. And you're just doing such amazing work and the infectious quality of how excited you are for books really translates in everything you do. So thank I'm you. I'm gonna for cry. That. I'm like emotional. Thank you so much, Stephen. That's so kind of you. Um, and everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Stephen Thrasher for being my guest. I'd also like to thank the entire PR team at Celadon Books for helping to make this interview possible. The Stacks Book Club pick for November is Prison by Any Other Name by Maya Shenoir and Victoria Law. We will be discussing the book on November 30th with Mariam Kaba. Be sure to tune in. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. 
This episode of The Stats was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.